You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for December 2007. Today's episode is titled, Finding Your Dream Job. Surveys indicate there is an 85% probability that you are not in your dream job. A dream job is one that causes your heart to sing. It is a job that you must do. Nothing can hold you back. Everything in your being is driving you. The passion within you is so great you will go to extreme measures to perform the work and you would gladly do it for free. How do you find your dream job? Listen to Dr. Chester's presentation, Finding Your Dream Job. Good evening. and Good to be with you. I'm all wired up, as you can see, so I've got to you know, be sure everything's working properly or I'll explode or something. Okay, are we on? We're not. What are you unhappy with? A switch. Did that do it? Yes. All right. Success. Okay. Well, we're going to have some fun this evening. Um, you guys want some fun? Yes. How many, how many eye personalities do we have here? Okay, the eyes definitely want fun. Uh, the rest of you are probably wondering, what in the world is an eye? You know? Well, an eye is somebody that brings fun to your life. So you need to note who the eyes are and tap into them because they'll bring a lot of fun to your life. So uh, who's got a dream job here? Okay, we got one, two, three, four, five, five out of, I got, I got you. I counted you, yeah. Okay, you know, five out of maybe, what, 20 people, 25 people? Uh, that's probably better than normal. You know, the vast majority of people uh, probably wouldn't raise their hand. We'll show you some stats on that in a minute. But let's just take a quick look at uh, some common views of success. Would you not assume that your dream job has something to do with success? Is that a fair assumption? There's a connection there? Okay, so let's just take a look at success. And let's look at 1923. That's a very good year, isn't it? Just, you don't remember that year? It was a very good year. Let's just take a look at what happened in 1923. That was the Roaring Twenties. And um, do you know who the president of the largest steel company was? Okay. Well... Hold on here. Who was the president of the largest gas company? Okay. Who's the president of the New York Stock Exchange? Nope. Who was the greatest wheat speculator? Wheat speculator. Wheat speculator. Wheat. Okay. And who was known as the bear of Wall Street? Don't know those added one either. Well, would you believe that these were considered to be some of the most successful men in the world at that time? And most would say they had their dream job. So, should we see what happened to them? Is that fair? Let's see what happened to these guys. I mean, they're... Huh? Yeah, let's have some fun. See what happened to them. Okay? Okay, Charles Schwab was the president of the largest steel company. He died a pauper. That's a good start. Okay. How about the next guy? This was Edward Hobson. He went insane. All right. You don't like that? All right. How about this guy? Richard Whitney was released from prison to die at home. We're going downhill fast, aren't we? Okay. How about this guy? Arthur Cougar died abroad penniless. Sound like your dream job? Is there any hope here? How about Jesse Livermore? He committed suicide. 
So that's what happened to five of the people in 1923 who were considered to be some of the most successful people in the world, people that we would look at and say, wow, they were in their dream job. So how does that make you feel tonight? Feel better now? Can we go home now? <laughs> well, all right, well, let me give you some hope, okay? You want some hope? All right, in the same year, in 1923, the PGA champion and the winner of the most important golf tournament, the U.S. Open, was Gene Sarazen. And what became of him? Well, he played golf until he was 92 and died in 1999 at the age of 95. He was financially secure at the time of his death. That gives you some hope, doesn't it? Hey, so what's the moral of the story? Forget, dream, forget your dream job and play golf. So now we're through. Now, so we had to have some fun. You know. But it is an interesting point to all this, and that is that the reality that we, we, we define our dream job um, rather poorly. And we really define it in terms of worldly concepts. True? Isn't that what we do? For example, just look at this. You know this guy? Who's that? That's Bill Gates. And we call him a success, right? And we think he probably is in his dream job, right? And why do we think that? Because he has a bunch of money. So that's one definition of your dream job, is having lots of money, right? Okay, come on, be honest. We, if we're all honest, in fact, what I find over and over again in working with people, money is almost always the unspoken agenda. In every decision, it's about money. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people talk about taking a job and they, they balk because it doesn't pay enough money. Do you think there may be something wrong with that thinking? Well, good, good, we're ahead here. All right, what about these people? Who are they? You should know these people. These are, these are famous people. You have been touched by these people. That's right, the Wright brothers. You knew the Wright brothers. You didn't recognize their picture, but you knew their name because they are famous. And what did they do? They did what? Okay. No, no one said invent, did they? You said invent? Okay. Can I suggest they didn't invent anything? They discovered God's principles of aviation. You hear the distinction? Yes. See, we, we think that people invent things. They create things. We really don't create anything. God created everything. What we do is discover how God's universe works. That's what they did. They got in their lab and they discovered the principles of aeronautics. And that's what led to them developing the first airplane. But were they a success? I would say. Do you think they had their dream job? I don't know about that, but they succeeded in getting the airplane off the ground. They did do that? Well, think about this. There was no money in it. They had a bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio, that they, that they used to make a living. And they sacrificed that to do this thing that had no money attached to it. Why? There's something in them that said, we have got to understand this. And as a result, they became famous because they did something nobody else did. So that's another definition of your dream job is when you do something that is just burning inside of you, you've got to do it. 
And so they became famous. Now, how about this guy? Who's that? Well, we all know him. He's Bin Laden. We can put some horns on him. Now, does he have influence? He's got influence worldwide. He's got people all over the world following him. Okay. Does he have his dream job? You know, he's, you know he's, got, he's worth a lot of money. His family was in the construction industry in Saudi Arabia, and uh, so he has family money. So money's never been an issue for him. He's doing, he's, what would happen to you if, if God dropped $100 million in your lap? What would you do? Huh? You'd buy what? Buy a pizza? Celebrate at lunch with a pizza. Celebrate at lunch with a pizza. Okay, that's how you'd start. All right, somebody else, what would you do? You got $100 million, what would you do? You'd buy a house. Okay, huh? Have a party. That's spoken by an eye. A big party. <laughs> a jet of men, huh? <laughs> party favors would be everybody get their own individual light jet. You come to this party, I'll give you a light jet. <laughs> well, see, well, that's kind of being silly, but the point is, when you, when you have resources, you have choices. He could do what he wanted to do, and he chose what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill us in the name of, of, the, of the Muslim faith. And so the point is, many people would look at him and say he is in his dream job. He got to pick it. And the problem with all this is, you see, all of this is non-biblical thinking. I hope you get this. And, and the other, other side of the equation is we think this way, which means we're not biblical in our thinking. So the challenge is, can we get a, get, a, get a biblical perspective of what a dream job is all about? Let me just give you some stats that uh, might be uh, illuminating to you about the reality of the world that we live in. Now here's a various uh, surveys, and these are results from surveys. These are stats about people in the workplace and their attitudes toward things. The first question is right here, this question right here. How, what percent of the workers are satisfied with their work? Just satisfied. They're saying, okay, I, I'm reasonably happy where I am. What percentage do you think are satisfied with their work? Five percent. Five percent? Huh? Huh? What? Forty? Thirty? Okay, y'all are pretty close. Thirty-nine percent are generally satisfied with their work. Okay, now the next question is what percent of people are loyal to the organization? Then what they would say, you know, I'm really going to, I'm loyal, I, I will work to support this organization. Five. Fifteen. Yeah, fifteen. Less than one percent. Thirty-four percent. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, now what percent do you think support the organization's mission? This is slightly different. You can be loyal to the organization and not support the mission, okay? I mean, it really support the, the mission. Now, there was actually three questions answered in, asked in this survey. The questions were, do you proactively support your organization's mission? Are you ambivalent to it, meaning you don't care? Or do you proactively work against your organization's mission? You ever thought about that? There are people out there hired by companies that proactively work against the mission of the organization? Well, think about that. You got any sense of what that statistic might be? I've seen a couple of different surveys on that. Anybody got a guess? Working against. 
They're proactively working against the organization. 5%, 10%. Anybody else? 25? Well, the, the data I have seen is being between 20 and 30%. Or proactively working against the organization. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's not that. It's not just a passive thing. They are consciously trying to sabotage this organization in whatever way they can. And the organization's paying them to do that. How does that make you feel about the products that you buy? You wonder, okay, well, the next, next time I buy a car or buy anything, you know, who is it that put it together and were they working for the company or against the company? Okay. All right, so what percent do you think proactively support the organization's mission? Take a guess. 20? Huh? I mean, you guys work. I mean, just look out there among the people that you know and just kind of, you know, what percent out of 100 people do you think are really working to support the organization? 10? 25? 40? 25%. That means roughly 50% of the people don't give a rip. They don't care. You got a quarter working for it, a quarter working against it, the other half, they don't care. So how, you wonder, how in the world do we do anything? Do we produce anything with only 25% of the people really trying to make it happen? Okay. Would, would, would you find it hard to believe that efficiency in corporate America is very low? I've actually um, I've done some studies with my clients. And we'll start out a conversation. We'll be in a planning meeting. We'll start a conversation. It'll go like this. Uh, okay, let's talk about production. And uh, what do you think is the efficiency level in the shop? And a production manager, he'll, he'll pop up, oh, 80%. Okay? And then the other managers start kicking in engineering and say, well, I don't know about that, you know, da 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 And pretty soon it's, it's down to 70%. And then the sales guy, they, ch they chime in, and it's down to 60%. And then the CEO starts talking, and it drops to 50%. Pretty soon before the conversation's over, it typically winds up around 35 40%. That's where managers finally get to as they talk among themselves and are really honest about the productivity in their shop and they realize they're wasting well over half their time. That's the reality in the workplace today. You think these people are in their dream jobs? Okay, what, what percent of the people generally enjoy their work? That is, that is their typical work day. I generally enjoy what I do. What percentage, huh? Huh? 15? 35. Huh? You agree? We've got two 35s. Going once. Going twice. How about 17%? 17% say they generally enjoy their work. And then we have the ultimate question, what percent are in their dream job? They say, this is it. This is, this is what I was meant to do. Huh? Five, what do you said? Is that what you said? Six percent. Seven. Eight. Two. Two. Negative number. Negative <laughs> number. <laughs> well, actually, it's 16 percent, which means if you generally enjoy your work, you kind of assume you're in your dream job. Do you think that might be a little misleading? Maybe they're, they're thinking about their dream job is not quite clear. You think that might be true? Well, that's my conclusion. I look at that and I think, oh, that doesn't compute to me. You know, in reality, as I, as I look at all the people I've worked with and 
I mean, I've, I've been in hundreds of companies over the years and talked to lots and lots of people. I find very, very few people that are passionately in love with what they do. You know, my sense is it's probably like really, if we got a real answer, it would probably be more like one, two, three percent are in their dream jobs. So does that, that's reality. That's where we are today. So the question is, is there really a dream job for you? Do you think there's a dream job for you? Raise your hand if you think there's a dream job for you. Okay. Some of you don't think there's a dream job. All right. Can I, can I suggest to you, it's a very valid question, and let's just take a look. Let's just take a look at a couple of things. First of all, let me suggest that the answer to that question for you is rooted in your theology. Now, is that a brain lock? You're saying, what does theology have to do with work? You know what you're thinking? Yeah, that's what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Because we all think that way. Because we, what we think, theology is what happens here when Bill speaks. He talks theology. Okay? And we kind of sort of understand him, but, you know, he talks in these words that we don't really get. And then we walk out the door and we live the rest of our life and we disconnect that with what we heard here. Isn't that what we do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because we don't, we don't know how to make the connection. And what does God have to do with work? I mean, work's kind of a dirty place, isn't it? Kind of nasty. I mean, people do bad things. They mistreat you. They lie to you. They steal from you. By the way, do you know what the data is on lying in the workplace? Have you all seen that number? 40, huh? What? 40,000 people were surveyed. The question is, do you habitually lie at work to accomplish your agenda? Whatever it is. You're trying to sell something, solve a problem, deal with an issue, whatever. You don't, you don't have a problem lying to accomplish your purpose. What percent? It's a big number. How about 93%? Now, what's, now, of course, I have a problem with that because how do you get the people to tell the truth about lying? I mean, I, I, there's something, you know, fishy about that data. But that's what the researchers report. Supposedly, these 40,000 people all of a sudden, you know, had a dose of righteousness and decided to tell the truth about their lying. So, uh, but it's startling when you think about that. But the reality is that lying is rooted in their theology. They have to have a theology that says to them, I'm okay if I lie. If your theology is, God will judge me for lying, that's not a very good place to be, is it? I don't think I would want to be lying if I thought God was going to judge me for lying. So you see, the theology was driving whether or not they would lie or tell the truth. Because theology drives everything that you do in life. Now let me just give you... A little, little picture that helps me. And I got this um, really meditating on some of Dennis Peacock's material. Uh, so it's a combination of, of his thoughts and kind of my thoughts. And I, it's a nice tool that helps me. Um, we live up here at this top level. It's, this is the physical reality, words, actions, circumstances, experiences. That's where we live. And that's where we experience the pain, agony, and suffering of life. Now, but this is only a symptom level, because what drives this level is this level. And this is where the spiritual and physical reality come together, and it's expressed in terms of norms and cultures and, and the legal climate, the laws that we enact, those kinds of things. But see, even that's not the root issue. The real root issue is this level here, which is driven by your worldview. 
See, everybody's got a worldview. And out of that worldview, they live their life. And the most fundamental question that everybody answers, whether they know it or not, is who is God? That's the starting point for all of reality. Who is God? So when you realize that that's the way reality works, you realize that everything starts down here. It filters up through here into norms and cultures and plans and winds up here in actual physical results and activity and circumstances. So whenever you're trying to solve a problem in this level up here, you have to drill down to here, down to here. That's why ultimately everything is a theological issue. You know, that's kind of a fun deal to, to look at. I, um, let me just give you an example, okay, illustration. Client comes to me and says, my business is falling apart. I said, oh, okay, well, tell me about it. He starts telling me about it. He happens to be in the printing and publishing business, and he goes on about what his, his business is falling apart. I said, okay. And uh, then I said, oh, by the way, my marriage is falling apart, which that didn't surprise me. Okay, why didn't that surprise me? Because there's a coupling between what you do in business and what you do in your marriage life. Because whatever you do in your business, you're doing in your marriage life. That's reality. Whatever you, you, you are the same no matter where you go, so you're going to be functioning the same way. Whatever rotten thinking you have in marriage, you have in your business and vice versa. So what, what was going on in both spheres didn't surprise me. So I, I'm starting to ask questions. Now, he's wanting me to solve his business problem. Okay? But I start drilling down. I'm going down, okay, what's, what's driving this? And I'm trying to get down to this root issue, the spiritual level. And so as I begin to talk with him, I discover control. Now, what is, the, what is control? What is control driven by? Fear. fear. Fear drives you to want to control. So what are you afraid of? So I'm drilling down to what's going on. Okay? Ultimately, where I got to was when he was 12 years old, his father died. And his father was close to him. And the pain of that death was so intense and so severe, and he could not understand why God would take his father and give him all this pain that he, did, he made an inner vow. Any of y'all made an inner vow? I'm never going to hurt this way again. When you make that kind of inner vow, you have to fulfill that vow. How do you make sure you never hurt that way again? You have to be in control of everything. And so he becomes an absolute hyper-fanatic control freak that nobody can stand. And it's all rooted in a theology that God is not good, that God is mean and cruel, that God will do things to hurt you. I have to protect myself from God. Do you see how his theology now is destroying his marriage and is destroying his business because nobody wants to deal with a control freak. His wife is just going nuts. She feels totally unloved because she's never good enough. You know what a control freak is like? I mean, they're absolutely on you all the time, micromanaging everything you do. Is anybody, anybody like that? Huh? You like that? No, I don't like that. Oh, good. I mean, nobody likes that. And that's the same way with business. Customers are sensing all this control coming out of him. They're just backing away. Nobody wants to do business with him. It's all because of bad theology. Do you see that? Is that computing to you? Okay. Y'all make me believe you really got that. Because you've got to get this or you're not going to understand the rest of this. Because, you know, your theology is driving your life. 
And so if, if you're wise, you'll really work on getting your theology straight. Because as you get your theology straight, then you're laying the foundation to live a life that lines up with God. So let me just give you some examples of answers to this question. Is there really a dream job for you? If you're an atheist, then your view of God is he doesn't exist. So right down here, you believe God doesn't exist. So now that drives your, your norms and practices here, which is all about you have to define reality yourself. You have to find meaning and purpose yourself. So it's all about you. And so up here on this level, it's all about you being existential and self-validating and all this kind of stuff. And that's where existentialism comes from. It's driven by an atheistic theology. It's where, the, by the way, it's where theory of evolution comes from, too. Evolutionary theory is rooted in atheism. And so with that, do you think you have a dream job? If there's no purpose, there's no meaning to life? You're up to, it's up to you to define whatever purpose or meaning there is in your life. There's, there's nothing out there. Nobody has set a path for you to walk in. You have to create your own way. So if you're an atheist, you don't have a dream job. Okay, what if you're a deist? Anybody know what a deist is? Okay, most of our founding fathers or many of our founding fathers were deists. And a deist is this. They believe God created the universe and then he walked away. Just walked away. He left us here with all the, the principles that he put in, the laws of gra <clears throat> gravity and electromagnetism and uh, the laws of medicine, the laws of, of uh, mathematics and the laws of sociology and psychology, all these various fields of study that we have. He made all the laws and he walked away. And it's up to us to kind of fight it out. And he's not involved. So in the, with that kind of God, do you think that as you begin to go up the chain here and you say, okay, with that kind of God who is disengaged, then what, what kind of culture do we have here? We have a culture where God's not really involved. Yeah, we have some rules that he gave us, but he's really not involved. So if he's not involved, he really doesn't care what's going on up there. So if he doesn't care, then how can I have a dream job if God doesn't care? So that doesn't give, give us to a very satisfying point. So that leaves us now with a biblical view. The biblical view is that God created the universe and he did not disengage. He did not walk away. He stayed connected with us. He is involved with us, and he cares about you and about me. And he cares about what we do. And so the name of the game now is to understand we have a God who is infinitely involved in us so that it defines now the culture of walking with God and hearing God and obeying God, and we have a path that he's decreed for us to walk in, and our job is to discern it and obey it, and then... The results now are different because now we have peace, joy, and satisfaction when we discover what God called us to do. Can we get that? Does it make sense that we have a God who is so intentional about creating us that when we find what he wants us to do, there's a lot of favor? Who here has had favor doing anything? Okay. Now, can you explain that favor? Why did you have favor doing that? Is it because you're a good guy? Because you're lucky? Okay? Or you just at the right place at the right time? You know, which is what the world defines, you know, as being lucky. No, you were, you were favored because God gave you that favor. Remember the story of the fisherman? This was toward the, the uh, Jesus had died, he'd resurrected, and the, the uh, disciples were going out to fish. They fished all night long. And here they come to the shore. Empty boat, they're tired, and there's Jesus on the shore. 
Now, Jesus is a carpenter. He's not a fisherman, right? He's a carpenter. He calls out to them, how'd you do? Did you catch any fish? And they said, no, came up empty. He said, throw the net out on the right side. Now, how would you respond to that? You're a fisherman. He's a carpenter. What do you think? Give me a break. You're a carpenter. I'm a professional fisherman. I know how to fish. But they, res they resisted. They threw the net out. And what happened? They couldn't hardly pull it back in. Now, what was that? That is called the favor of God. How many of you want God to tell you where to throw the net? Lord, in spades do I want that. I keep trying to do it myself. I want you to tell me where to throw the net. Because I know wherever you want me to throw it, it's going to get really full. It's going to be great. That's the favor we're looking for. That happens in a biblical view. Because we have a God who is involved, who loves us, who cares about our life, and has decreed good for us because he is a God who is good. So that's, that's why we have hope to have a dream job. Do you know that you, the average person you run into on the street has no hope of having a dream job? Because they don't have a good theology. Now, 10% of the people you run into statistically are going to be atheists. 90% are going to be professing to believe in God. The vast majority of those have no idea what God they believe in. So the vast majority of people you run into, even though they may profess to believe in God, they don't have a clue who God is. You have revelation. You now become salt and light to them if you can show them how to discover your dream job. And then you can say, hey, follow me. This is the way. And the way is first through Jesus Christ coming to know him, and then that releases you to what God's called you to do. What is the most important thing you can do for anybody. Let's say God's going to give you two things you can do for anybody on this planet. You pick anybody you want. You get to do two things for them. What's the most important thing you can do for them? Huh? Introduce them to Jesus Christ. That is absolutely the most important thing you can do. No doubt about it. Hands down. That begins to get the theology right. Correct? You've got to know Christ or you don't have good theology. So you introduce them to Christ. Now, what's the second most important thing you can do? Teach them about the Lord. How about help them discover what God created them to do? Is there anything more important than that? When you see somebody doing what God made them to do, the yoke is easy, the burden is light, the favor is there, and there is a flow of blessing in their life that overflows to other people. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the two most important things we can do for anybody. And so we are in the game... We have the ability to be an incredible blessing to the people we come in contact with by finding our dream job and showing people how to do it. So, so let's, uh, let's talk about how to do that. A biblical worldview is that you are created by inten intentional, purposeful God to rule his creation. And I love this text in Psalm 8, verse 6. It says, you, he's talking about God, made him, that is man, ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Now we read that and we don't think a lot about it, but do you realize what that's saying? You know, that is saying that we were put here to rule God's creation. Sounds kind of like Genesis 1, doesn't it? What the Bible is saying to us is that we are God's rulers and we're to rule his physical creation. 
we tend to think as Christians that we have given the world over to the enemy. And the enemy's in charge, and we're not supposed to do anything other than kind of be submarines. We kind of go underground, underwater, surface down again, pass out a track, go underwater again, you know, get back to church as soon as we can. And we don't see, you know, the reality of going out there and being world changers, being, making a difference, being the people, being God's emissaries in wherever you are. Where, where do some of you work? Just tell me where some of you work. Come on. Ron, where do you work? Project management. Where? Something. Where? San Francisco. San Francisco? With different, different companies? Yeah. Okay. Somebody else, where do you work? Macy's. Huh? Macy's. Macy's. Okay. Somebody else, where do you work? Yeah, I know where you work, yes. Maher. You work for John Maher? Really? The famous John Maher? Dream job. Wow. Yeah. Wow, you must be Judy. Is that right? Aha, uh -huh. okay. All right, who else? Where else do you work? I know you work on the golf course. Okay. Where else? You work at a hospital, right? Okay, where do you work? Health Nut. Health Nut? What is Health Nut? Huh? Health Net. Health Net. Health Oh, a health insurance company. Okay. And where do you work? You work for Dennis Peacock? You do? Okay. And who else do you work for? Millwork. Carpentry work? Okay. All right. Now, everywhere, everybody works at a different place doing different things. But we all have the same assignment. Be God's person in that job. That's our assignment. God cared enough to make you to do that job. In fact, I would like for us to stop using the term job. May I suggest that? Simply because we don't, we don't understand what it means. I keep, people keep calling me up and say, well, I need a job. And when I hear that, my reaction is, no, you don't need a job. You know what you need? You need to know your assignment. In fact, I wish we could put in our cars, in our radios, in our cars, every, every morning the Mission Impossible theme. <laughs> and that's how we go to work with that music playing. Because we need to view it as a Mission Impossible in the flesh. But in the spirit, it's possible. And so we've got to begin to get it. We're on assignment. You know, we've been given a special assignment to go and be God's people in that place where he's assigned us. So this is the biblical view. God is intentional and purposeful. There are no accidents. Things happen for a reason, and you are here for a reason to do God's bidding. So how do you find your assignment, your dream job, the thing that God made you to do? Well, let me give you a suggestion. And this is what I'll be covering in the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar that starts tomorrow night. And for those of you that are not registered, we still, I think, have a couple of slots open if you want to register. But we're going to talk about the C4 principle. And I, I call it the C4 principle because you know what C4 is in explosive terms, don't you? It's, it's a very powerful explosive. Well, C4 in the spirit is very powerful. When you get C4 and you find what you have C4 to do, you will release incredible power in your life to be God's person. Now, the C4 principle is seen in a construction project. Remember when the tabernacle was built? Have you ever thought about how did God decide to hire people to build the tabernacle? Have you ever thought about that? What criteria did he use? Size. 
Huh? That's one of the things he used. But he used, he used four key components. And uh, we're not going to take the time to read the text, but this is Exodus 35, 30 through 36, 2. I'm just going to show you the C4 principle right here in this text. Now, this is a construction job. How many of you work construction? How many of you ever work construction? Okay. You know it's kind of a dirty, nasty job, isn't it? And it can be full of chaos and, and confusion and unhappy people. In fact, you hear some interesting language on construction jobs. So it's not, not a place where you'd go and think that you're going to do a lot of worship, is it? Huh? Well, let's, let's take a look at this. Maybe we get a new vision of construction. Okay, first of all, I want to show you the first component of C4 is calling. And that shows up right here. It says, see the Lord has chosen, that is, he's called Bezael, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and has filled him with the Spirit of God. You see the word called. Calling is what God does. He calls us to do whatever it is he's assigned us to do. Isn't that nice to know that he is intentional, purposeful, involved enough, cares enough about you to specifically make you and put a call in your life. And notice another aspect of that is this, at the bottom it says, who was willing. Now that word willing in the Hebrew is the, is the word lieb. Now the word lieb is much more intense than, than the English word willing. The English word willing is kind of a, you know, you know, kind of a Casper milk toast word, you know, it doesn't carry that much oomph to it. But the, the Hebrew word lieb was intense. He said, I want people to have passion, who have drive, who are hungry to do this work. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for people that recognize the call of God in their life to build this tabernacle. Okay, the next thing that happens is, is character. That's the second C. Notice that he was filled with the Spirit of God. Now, how many of you have ever hired anybody? You ever hired anybody? Okay, was it on your list of criteria they had to be filled with the Spirit of God? Huh? Was it? Wait a minute. This is construction. This is hammers and nails and, and rocks and moving dirt and all that stuff with dirty old stuff. He's got to be filled with the Spirit of God? What is this? Well, this is God's standards for doing work. Because when you're filled with the Spirit of God, you're released to be all God created you to be. Sin gums you down. It holds you back. The Spirit of God releases you. So that's why it's important. I know we're in a culture that's very rapidly trying to eliminate any kind of thought in the hiring process of your spiritual life. That's a reality that we're having to face. It's going to become increasingly difficult to really be true to biblical principles in our culture because our, we are becoming more atheistic. Some people say we're becoming post-Christian. Okay, Remember, that's the worldview level. That's our theology is becoming very bad. And so now that theology is being inculcated into our laws. That's the second level. And then that's going to express itself in how we actually function, what, how, what we can say and not say in the hiring process what we can consider and not consider. You see how that works? Y'all give me a sense you're getting this. I mean, this is, if you get nothing else, get this, please. If you could ever learn to think and see things in root issues, you will really solve problems because you cannot solve a problem unless you can see the root. 
So character is absolutely critical. In fact, one of the interesting things about researchers, as you read the, the literature and you, you try to understand what researchers are coming up with, they, they've made a very interesting observation. They said people get hired based on perceived capability, which makes sense. What happens when you hire somebody? What's the first thing you do? You sit down and write down the, the job skills that you want, right? Well, I need, need an accountant to do this and that and that, or I need a, need a manager to do da 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 We start writing down the skills. And that's how we generally hire people, as most people in corporate America do. Why do most people get fired? Because the skills were perceived, not real. No, it's because of character. character. It's character. They get fired because of character, which is most interesting. Now, there's, there's a few companies that are figuring this out. Some of you know about Southwest Airlines. It's located in Texas, you know, which is about half the United States. You've heard of Texas. Do you know this is really West Texas? You did know that, didn't you? <laughs> Thought you knew that. <laughs> but Southwest Airlines is very clever. They have figured out that for them to do what they do well, they have to hire based on character first. When you go to interview with Southwest Airlines, the first thing they're going to try to determine is do you have a value system that's consistent with ours? If you don't, you're eliminated. If you do, then we'll talk to you about your, your capability. But character comes first there. It's one of the few companies I know that does it that way. And they are the only airline, the only airline that consistently makes money. Do you think there might be a correlation? Okay, so character is huge. So the next one is capability. This is, everybody knows this, you've got to have the capability to do whatever it is you're doing. That's a no-brainer. And the final thing is commissioning. This is something we don't understand well. Commissioning is what authority figures do. It sets the context from which you're able to go and do whatever it is that God wants you to do. Now, this, I'm going to just real quickly walk you through some C4. First, I'm going to give you a model, and I'm going to walk you through a little bit about what this is all about. Calling, a good way to think of calling is the passion or the cry of your heart. There's something in your heart that's stirring. You may not know what it is. You may not have ever touched it, but it's there. The next thing is character, and the only way you're going to have godly characters is you've got to be lined up with God. You've got to have good, good theology, which that's one of the reasons if you're not in Bible studies and you're not studying the Word of God, you need to be. You need to get good theology in your heart, and you need to start letting that transform the way you think. Then you need skill and ability. All of you have skill and ability. Everybody has skill and ability. And there's no right or wrong answer. You know, some people have the tendency to think, well, if you're not like me, you're defective. Does anybody think that way? I mean, we all tend to think that way. If you're not like, I mean, I, I'm pretty good, so if you're not like me, you're defective. We need to learn to value diversity. God put diversity into his creation for a reason. Have, have you ever noticed that you don't have all the skill to do in here, everything? Have you noticed you have limitations? Okay, I mean, I, I've discovered that. My wife's discovered that. She decided, she says, you don't fix anything in the house because you just break things because I don't have good finger dexterity. I, I drop things and I break things and, you know, so I, you know, no, no way am I going to fix anything. I'm very pleased. My wife is proud of me. The pegboard in our garage has nothing on it, not a thing, because I am not gifted to fix anything. We recently bought our grandson a toy from uh, Costco. It's a big 
85-pound school bus, a wood school bus that had to be assembled. And I thought, my wife, you're out of your mind. You want me to assemble this thing. Well, it took me probably three hours when it would probably taken a gifted person 30 minutes, going step by step, making sure I was getting everything in the right place, get skinning up my knuckles and, you know, I mean, just unbelievable. I mean, it's so hard for me to do that stuff because it's not, I'm not gifted to do it. But a gifted person, he just slaps it together, all works, done, bing, next. And see, you have gifts where you will shine. And you have other areas where you are going to be a dud. And the reason it's that way is so that we will be interdependent. See, we keep trying to live independently. Like, hey, I'm my own person. I can do my own thing. I don't need you. How many of you have made an inner vow when you were someone at a point in your life that you didn't need people? I did that. I did that as a young man. It, it took me a long time to figure out that that was operative in me, bad theology in me that was killing my work. And when I repented and the Lord healed me of that inner vow and released me now to learn to work with people, it took me to a whole new level of work. All because I corrected bad theology. Do you see that? I'm trying to get this across hard. Because if I can get this across to you, I mean, this is the evening's worth it right there. Okay, so skill and ability, we all have it. We've got to develop it and be all that God created us to be. Then we have commissioning. This is the validation by authority figures. And the thing that makes this so important is because God has made it this way. He's made it that we have to work in, in authority relationships. Nobody can do it by themselves. Nobody can figure it all out for themselves. We have to learn to be in proper relationships with authority figures. And when we are, then they will release us. They will validate what God has put in us. And so when we have all this, you notice there is a little intersection right here where everything comes together. Well, that is your target. That's where your calling, your character, your capability all come together, and that is your race. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3 is a picture of the race. Therefore, since we were, are surrounded by such a great crowd, cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Do you see in this picture of this race, there's one person in each lane. There's multiple lanes, but one person in each lane. You are the person in your lane. God has ordained that lane for you. And your job is to get in that lane and run your race. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our encourager. When we get that right theology in us, we are now being released to run our race. The C4 principle is a, one of the tools to help us get the right theology in our heart. So very quickly, let me just go through C4 with you. First one is calling. Calling is the legitimate cry of the heart. And I love this text in, uh, in Psalm 37.4. I guess the reason I love it is because there's a part of me that likes to surprise people. You know, and 
This verse is generally pretty misunderstood. Um, by the way, on Sunday, I'm going to talk about another verse that's very misunderstood. And that's the Great Commission. Okay? Most people think it's about evangelism. So would it surprise you to know that I don't agree? So come Sunday, and I'll share with you what I think it really says. But this one, Psalm 37:4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, what we think that means is you get real happy with God. Then he'll do whatever you want him to do. That's what we think it means. You know what it really means? You know what that word delight, what the Hebrew word is there? The Hebrew word delight means to become pliable in the hands of God. A better translation would be, be humble. That would be a better translation than delight. Delight misleads us a little bit. It is to get pliable in the hands of God, and then he is going to reveal to you what he put in your heart. And that's different from what your flesh wants most of the time. So we want the key to calling is get in touch with the God-ordained passion in your heart. A great illustration of this, you know Steve Irwin? You know who he was? Okay. Now, I have no idea if he was saved or not, but he was, he was created by God. God put a heart in him of passion to do something. And you notice, just notice the way he died. He died doing what he loved. Did you know that? Did you all read about how he died? You know, he was a passionate environmentalist. He brought joy and entertainment and excitement to millions of people. And here's how he died. Taking time off from the main project, he was snorkeling with a cameraman around these bull rays. He was playing. One of the keys to find out what's in your heart is look what you do when you have the time to do whatever you want to do. That's what he was doing. He had time off. He was doing what he loved. Notice that also his heritage was a big part of it. He grew up near crocodiles, trapping and removing them from populated areas, releasing them in his parents' park, which he took over in 1991. You see, this is a man that lived his passion. Now, some of you may disagree with his choices and all that, and that's fine. We all make bad choices. The point of the illustration is to show you what it looks like to live your passion. He's a man that lived his passion. You know, I would love to see a Christian in love with Jesus live their passion in the workplace. Now, see, what we think, if you're in love with Jesus, you've got to be a pastor, right? That's what we think. Or if you're in love with Jesus, you've got to be an evangelist. Or if you're in love with Jesus, you've got to be a missionary. You couldn't possibly work at a construction site, could you, and be in love with Jesus? Could you work at Macy's and be in love with Jesus? Could that happen? See, that's the brain lock we get into because we're dualists. You know, we think Christianity happens here. It doesn't happen outside those doors. And guess what? God doesn't think that way. We have bad theology. We need to get our theology lined up with God and know that God cared enough to put spirit-filled people on the construction team to build the tabernacle. Whoa, that's a brain lock. Shouldn't those people be tending to communion? You know? Maybe visiting people in the hospital. And there's nothing wrong with those things. Those things need to be done. It's just that God views all of the things in his creation as valuable. And we keep trying to say, no, no, no work couldn't be valuable. No, no, no. You know, running schools or, you know, running our communities or, you know, running retail shops and selling stuff. That couldn't be valuable to God, could it? Well, he created all this stuff. 
Is there anything in this planet he didn't create? And he put us here to rule it. Is there anything excluded from what we're supposed to rule? No, there's nothing. It's all here for us to, to, to walk out the reality of what God created us to do. Character. Character is the, I've got several definitions up here. It's the aggregate of traits that form one's nature. Another definition is this. It's a set of qualities that makes one distinctive. It's what you do when no one sees or, or knows what you're doing. That's a great definition. That's what your real character is. It's what you, did, what you do when nobody is looking or you think nobody's looking. What I like the best is this one. It's the direct result of one's worldview or belief about God. And it's expressed in one's values and operating principles. And you notice I've got a parenthetical statement up there that everyone's a person of faith. And I put that up there because we need to get this. Because we, keep being, we Christians being, are keep being marginalized because we're called people of faith. Have you noticed that? Okay, the, the people that are doing that are the people that claim they're people of reason. They, they make a distinction. They're people of reason. We're people of faith and like, you know, faith is weak and, and you know, you don't count as much. You're, you're lesser than. The reality is everyone that walks this planet is a person of faith. Because everybody has to make a, make a decision, whether they know it or not, about who is God. And whatever that decision is, it drives everything. Now you say, no, no, I'm a rational person. Okay, well tell me, how is it that you know that your brain tells you truth? Can you tell me that? How do I know that my eyes are seeing what I think I'm seeing? How do I know that my ears are really hearing what's really there? You see, I have a whole bunch of faith in my mental faculties, in my senses, but I never acknowledge that because I am a person of reason. You see, that's just the deception we live in. We need to be sharp enough in our theology to challenge people when they marginalize us and say, well, you're a person of faith. You really don't count. So, okay, well, let's talk about that. Tell me about, about you. What, do you what, what is your worldview built on? And if they go to rationalism, you know how to begin to talk to them. And you know, you know something? The best way to talk to people is to talk to them about the real root issues of life. Because you're not going to persuade people most of the time to talk, talking to somebody who's, who believes in abortion and you don't. And you just have a debate. You don't go anywhere. But if you'll drill down to what is it that drives you to believe in abortion. Because abortion's a, on a symptom level. Okay? And it's, it's a practice that is being adopted by our culture because we have an atheistic worldview in our culture. Because the atheistic worldview says that, hey, there is no God and there's no rules and we can make up our own rules. And so we've decided that fetuses are not human beings so we can kill them. And that way you can go ahead and be immoral. Because there's really no, nothing wrong with having premarital sex. That's okay. You see how we rationalize things? It's bad theology at work again. So your worldview is what drives your character, and everybody is a person of faith, and everybody then develops a, a, a basic value system out of their belief. Okay, I, I don't think I have time to do this. I will, those of you in the seminar, you'll see this little model here. It shows you the connection between worldview, values, and principles, and worldview is based on, on your belief in God. Your values then come out of your worldview, and your principles come out of your values. That's how they connect. So whatever operating principles you have in life 
are rooted in your values. And a simple illustration is the golden rule. What is the golden rule? Well, you're pretty good. Some people, most people say it's he who has the gold makes the rules. That's not the golden rule. The golden rule is to treat the others the way you want to be treated. What is the value that's inculcated in that principle? It's love. Love is expressed by the golden rule. And where does love come from? It comes from a theology that God is love. And he disseminates love to his creation. You see how it works? I'm really trying hard to get you to get this. Okay? So the worldview drives your values, which drives your principles. And here's some, I'll just give you a couple of illustrations here. If your worldview is Allah is God, if that is your worldview, that's your starting point, that's your theology about life, then guess what? You probably value deception. And you express it by deceiving non-Muslims. Now, I first heard about this from a lecturer about a year ago from a, a professional. As far as I could tell, he's a professional in the, in the Muslim faith. And he shared a story to illustrate this. And the story went like this. <clears throat> There's a tradition that Muhammad was being chased by uh, his enemies. And he came upon a cave that had spider webs all across the front of the cave. And he very cleverly and stealth stealthily got past the spider webs into the cave. And he hid in the back of the cave. And here comes the enemies. They come by. They take a look at the cave. They look at the spider webs. And they said, uh, nobody's in there. Spider webs are not dis disturbed. So they kept on going. So the Muslims concluded that God values deception because he used deception to protect Muhammad from the enemies. And therefore, it is okay. In fact, it is valued by God to deceive your enemy. Do you see how your theology is driving your values, which drives your operating principles? And that's what's going on there. We could, we could pick other ones. You could pick the Hindu faith, which they worship cows and creates tremendous inefficiencies. And where we could pick up, uh, you know, the worldview, I am God. What is that? Humanism. humanism. Secular humanism. Okay, we could pick that one up, talk about that. We could talk about God's whimsical. You know what that one is? That's, that's, God, that's Africa. They view God as very whimsical, and you, so you have human sacrifice and all these appeasements going on. So all these things are driven by theology. But those are illustrations of, of, of the things that define your value system, which defines your character. That's the point. Um, I, I wish I had time to go through this. This is another thing I'm going to go through in the seminar. These are character impediments, things that happen uh, in the workplace. For example, depression. 16% of Americans are, are clinically diagnosed as depressed. It's costing corporate America, uh, as of about 19, or 2003, something like $44 billion a year in lost productivity. And the surveyors acknowledge that that's an incomplete number. Because what happens with depressed people is they come to work, and what do you think happens to them with, this, with the other workers around them? Well, all the, well, they do make them depressed, but all the other workers, now they come, they gather around them to help them. And so they haven't been able to compute the impact on the other workers, their lost productivity, helping the depressed people. So you got the depressed people there not productive, and now you got all their buddies not productive. So that number is way low. And another thing they've discovered is you can add up all the other illnesses put together, and it doesn't hold a candle to what depression is costing us. Do you know what depression is? Depression is anger turned inward. It's a spiritual issue. It's bad theology at work. I wish we had time. I mean, this is fun when you get into this and see this. Whoa, man. 
the spiritual climate in this country is absolutely killing us. Then you got disengaged workers. You saw that statistic before. Embezzlement, 6% of the total revenue of corporate America is lost to embezzlement. Did you hear me? I didn't say net profits. I didn't say gross profit. I said revenue. If you're in Europe, they call it turn. 6% of the top line is lost to embezzlement. Emotional inefficiency, oh, this is fascinating. I've got to tell you this one. This is a new, new area of research. Researchers have, it's like they have they've discovered something new. They started looking at corporate America and they realized, you know, there's a bunch of dysfunctionality going on out here. What's, what's the root of that? And as they begin to drill down, what they have discovered is that people have not learned some basic childhood lessons, like how to resolve conflict, how to work in teams, you know, how to submit to authority. Little things like this. They didn't learn as children, so when they become adults and they join corporate America, what do you think happens? That dysfunctionality that they, they had as a child, it gets carried right into their work life. And so now the researchers say, well, what's that doing to people, their, their character and their ability to perform? Well, the researchers have concluded that the impact on corporate America in terms of productivity is somewhere between 20 and 50 percent. Does that not, it just makes my jaw drop. I look at that and say, whoa, man, how do we do anything in this country when you see this stuff? And you have lying, 93% of the people lie. Dysfunctional managers, I love this. This is a Harvard Business Report story. I found, I mean, this was fascinating. 90% of the managers are observed, waste, or we observe, wasted their time, frittered away their productivity, despite having well-defined projects, goals, and knowledge necessary to do the jobs. Do you see that number? 90% are blowing it. What is this? This is character problems at work in corporate America. Narcissism is huge. It's all about self-focus. I call them M&M people. You know a bunch of M&M people. M&M people are about me and money. That's M&M people. How many of you know M&M people? You all know M&M people. You may be an M&M person. And if you are, repent. Then you got psychopaths. Psychopaths are abusers in corporate America. So these are all character impediments that you see throughout corporate America. So let's go on to the third, third, uh, the third C, which is capability. We've talked about calling. We've talked about character. Now we're going to talk about capability. Capability is the skill and ability to do something. We all have innate traits. These are traits that are not changeable. For example, your personality, your behavior pattern, it is not changeable. It is the way God wired you. If you're an I, you're an I. If you're a D, you're a D. If you're an S, you're an S. Whatever it is that God put into you, that's what you are. And guess what? There is intent and purpose behind, behind your personality. Now, a lot of us think because you're not like me, you're defective. Now, admit it. You do. If, if you're a high C, you like things to be neat and orderly and done right. And you can't stand it when the I's get sloppy. That's what happens. Because the I's, it's, you know, you know, approximately is good enough. The C's approximately is never good enough. They want to have it down to the last decimal point. Well, that's what God put in you. And he put into it for a reason. And there's purpose behind all of these things. Your family of origin. Who here decided where they would be born? Anybody? Did you decide when you would be born? Did you decide your parents? What's wrong with you guys? Aren't you self-actualized? Huh? 
Haven't you got it together? No, because nobody decides those things because God decided those things. That is if you believe in the God of the Bible. Now, if you're an atheist, you think it just was random chance, you know, just some you know, random thing of the universe that had no meaning, no significance. But God says there's a reason you were born into your family. There's a reason that you're male or female. There's a reason that you have the personality that you have. There's a reason that you were born on the day you were born, in the place that you were born. There's a reason you have the opportunities that you have. Because God is intentional. So these are the innate traits that we all have that are not changeable. Now we have innate traits that are, that are changeable, like aptitudes. Aptitude theory is a fascinating study, how God has given all of us various aptitudes, and our job is to develop those. Do you all agree Tiger Woods is a great golfer? Would you all agree that? Okay, when he came out of the womb, did he come out of the womb a great golfer? No, what did he have to do? He had to go practice and develop the skill, like I'm doing with my grandson, who I'm predicting, I'm prophetically predicting, will be the 2030 U.S. Open champion. And if you want his autograph, you can ought to start now. But you have to start working on the golf game early. You've got to get the grip right and the stance right. And you've got to start learning how to swing, get the swing playing right. You've got to get the right clubs, John. And you can develop your golf game. This, this is the wonderful thing about life. We get to take these talents and develop them. There are... There are other things that are acquired traits. Education, training, experience are things that acquire, and these all go into you, and there are no mistakes. Whatever experiences you have in your life, whatever training you have in your life, whatever education you have, it's there because it's going to work together to guide you where God wants you to go. So that's what you've got to look at as you discover your capability. Um, commissioning is the, this is the fourth characteristic. We have calling, character, Capability, and the fourth thing is commissioning. Commissioning is the external validation by authority figures of what God has put in you. And some of the key commissioning people in your life are your parents. In fact, I submit to you that we don't have a biblical worldview of parenting by and large. You believe me? Can I make my argument? Will you let me make my argument? Okay, here's my argument. Have you ever seen anybody born? Who's seen somebody born? Isn't that a marvelous thing? Okay, I watched my older daughter being born. And I was, at the time that she was born, I was in my PhD program in physics. And of course, a, a scientist is a trained observer. We're always observing everything and trying to see how it all fits together. And so here comes this thing out of my wife that was blue initially. And it worried me. I said, I think she needs some oxygen, which I shouldn't have been speaking up. I should just kept my mouth alone, shut. But I couldn't resist. She looks blue to me. But anyway, they start pumping oxygen in her, and she, she starts crying, and everything's cool. And then I got to inspect her. You know, you know that's kind of cool to be able to inspect this little baby. And I'm looking all around this little baby. And, you know, I noticed something. Did, did y'all ever get to inspect a baby? Did you do that? I mean, there's nothing on the baby. You get to look at everything. Okay, and I start inspecting this baby, and I notice there is no nameplate. Did you notice that? There's no nameplate on the baby. And you're saying, hey, wait a minute. How do I know what to do with this thing? Where's the owner's manual? There's no owner's manual. What's going on here? So 
I've got this thing. I've got to do something with it. I don't know what to do with it. Well, see, that's the way God made it. God gave you a grand research project. Figure out why I created this person. And go train them to do what I created them to do. That is what parenting ought to be. Now, what we've turned parenting into is, well, you can do pretty much anything you want to do. So we just kind of put a net under them, you know, and just let them go out there and kind of define themselves, find themselves, determine what they are going to believe. We have no sense of training in our culture today. Biblically, we're told to train a child in the way they are bent. That is the way God made them to work. Discover what's in them, call it out, equip them, release them, train them to go do it. That's what parenting is. Would you all agree? Would that be a good view of parenting? You know, kids, young people are not in a position to make good choices. Would you agree with that? Okay. Because young people don't have any wisdom. You as the parents have some wisdom. Use your wisdom. Don't let, don't let them just go out there willy-nilly making choices. In fact, one of the things that my wife's discovered in her research about the human brain is that the last thing to develop in human beings, physically develop, is the brain. And the last part of the brain to develop is the ability to see cause and effect. Does it surprise you to know that teenagers are so goofy? <laughs> teenagers look like they're grown, but they are not grown. We let them go at 18 because we have declared that, oh, they're grown. They're not grown. In fact, researchers have discovered that it's about age 25 that you fully grow physically. Now, do you know somebody who's figured this out? Insurance companies. Have you noticed that? What happens to insurance on, on men when they turn 25? It drops like a rock, doesn't it? Now, why is that? That's because of reality. They have discovered that people less than 25 years old are a big risk, particularly if they're males. And so the premiums go up through the roof. But once they're 25, it's like sanity sets in. And now they can be a reasonable risk. Well, the world is figuring out what we ought to be telling the world. We ought to be explaining to the world how God made the universe and helping them understand people. Instead, the world is ahead of us. What is wrong with this? Is this we're, we're the tail and not the head? Is that what that is? Can we believe that we might be behind? Okay, well, here's, that's, that's the challenge here. Is we don't really know how to parent because we don't understand God's principles and we don't understand how he made people. And same way with teachers. Teachers should be commissioning agents. They should be looking to release people into what God has called them to do. You know, it's, it's very fascinating to, uh, my wife runs a Christian private school, and it's very interesting to watch the things that happen. And one of the things that's happening right now is this whole mentality that if you're going to have some kind of competition, everybody has to get an award. Have you all seen that? We wouldn't want to hurt the self-esteem of Johnny. Now, if everybody gets an award, how do the people that are really gifted in that area know they're gifted in that area? We just destroyed a great commissioning opportunity because we were worried about Johnny having self-esteem. What we should be telling somebody that's not gifted to do something 
is we should be acknowledging where they are gifted, helping them discern where they do have talents and abilities, and then training those, not be critical of them. Well, you don't, you're not very good at math. You're kind of a dunce. I mean, this guy over here is pretty good. You need to get with it. And we use this negative type of psychology to try to, to, to encourage them. And what do we do is we just wound their spirits. See, we, we have got to get biblical perspective on people or we're never, never going to train our children right. We're never going to hire right. We're never going to help people find their dream job. So teachers are huge commissioning agents for all of us. Employers and managers are commissioning agents. Church leaders are commissioning agents. That's kind of a new revelation. Wow. I thought we were just supposed to be spiritual people at church. You know, we take up the offering and we go visit the sick and Monday night visitation. And that's what I did when I grew up. You know, can we have a vision that we see destiny in people? I was actually teaching biblical worldview of, of church about a year ago at my church. And um, there was a lady in the class who was about 40 years old. And as I'm talking away, I could tell she was agitated. Now, why would anybody be agitated with me? I mean, I am such a mild-mannered, easy-going guy, so much fun, but she's agitated with me. So, I, you know, I looked over, I said, okay, what's going on? And she says, well, I'm having a disconnect with what you're saying about how the church should be a commissioning agent. I said, okay, tell me what, what's your experience? She said, well, I've been in church all my life, and all, that all that's ever been for me is they've just told me what to do. I said, what do you mean? Well, they told me to show up for this dinner and and work in the nursery and, and, you know, be here for that and be here for this. And I said, okay, so has anybody, anybody associated with the church, any elder or pastor, anybody connected with the church leadership ever sit down with you and said, gee, let me pray with you about what God has put into you? She said, no. I said, really? Not a single church letter leader has taken enough interest in you to try to discern the call of God in your life? I said, nope. I said, how does that make you feel? She said, used. And I submit that's what a lot of people feel very used in our churches today. And I repented to her on behalf of the, our, our own church, because I'm, I'm an elder there. I said, I repent. Will you forgive me for not valuing you as God values you and failing to be a commissioning agent in your life? That is, that's a sin on my part as a church leader. And I repent. And, you know, we've got to begin to get that vision that we are dealing with precious creations of God and start valuing them and calling them in to what God has called them to do. No one can self-commission. And a great example of this is Adonijah in, um, in, and that's 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2. You can look at that on your leisure. But I want to, I've got to wrap up because we're out of time here and I want to read you a story if I can find it here. Uh, this is a story from Bruce uh, Wilkinson's Dream Giver. It's a story about a lady that, um, who was very typical. She was a waitress in a, in, a, in a restaurant, and she had lost her vision. She had no hope. She couldn't see how God really cared about her, and there was anything of any significance that she could do. And she didn't see being a waitress as very significant. Now, you know, being a waitress can be significant. If you're called to be a waitress... It's significant. Because whatever you're called to do counts. 
But anyway, this is a great story, and I just want to read it to you because I can't tell it as well as, as he does. Um, he writes, the Hollywood producer didn't believe it was true, and I couldn't seem to change his mind. Now, he's talking about the whole issue of having destiny and purpose in everybody's life. I was about to buy him lunch at my favorite neighborhood restaurant. He couldn't believe that every person had been created with a big dream and that most people, for one reason or another, were just pursuing it or, or just aren't pursuing it. He said that only a few people are born dreamers. Just because you happen to be one of them, he said, you don't really think everyone in this restaurant is one, do you? I was losing the debate, so as we took our seats, I didn't know what to do. Our conversation had special meaning to me because although my producer friend didn't know it, I was trying to help him pursue his big dream. I was almost to the point of giving up when an idea came to mind. Why not try to prove it right in front of him? When our waitress, Sonia, came to take her order, my heart was pounding, but I took a risk. I asked her, are you doing what you've always wished you could do? She looked at me questioningly. What do you mean, she asked. I said, well, maybe there's some big dream in you that would be terrific. But I wonder, did you have a big dream inside your heart that hasn't come true yet? Sonia thought for a minute, then she said, my mother is a nurse, my sister is a nurse, and I've always dreamed of becoming a nurse. Do you think I could become a nurse? Do you think I would be a good nurse? Sonia become, became emotional. I would, have been really, I would really be a good nurse, she said softly. Would you like to be a nurse at this very moment, I asked. Yes, she said. So I took another risk. Do you happen to believe that God wants you to be a nurse? She took a minute. She stepped away, and then she came back. She said, I think so. If God wants you to be a nurse, then there must be a way for you to become a nurse. Sonia listed the reasons why she couldn't be a nurse. Education cut short by marriage, two children, demands of raising a family. It's impossible, she said. It's too late. I heard the sadness in her voice. What would have to happen for you to become a nurse, I asked. We don't have enough money, she said. I can't afford a babysitter, so I can't go to school. So if you had a babysitter, would you go to school? She said, yes, I would. I glanced at my producer friend to make sure he was taking all this in. Then I took another risk. Sonia, I believe there's somebody in your life who cares about you and would babysit your children for free. Who is that person? Sonia thought for a moment, and then she lit up. It's my mother. She just retired two months ago. She loves her grandchildren, and she's always wanted me to have my dream. She had babysit my kids for free. I just, I just have to ask her. When she spoke, her eyes brimmed with tears. Mine did, too. Anytime I see someone else's dream surfacing, I'm deeply touched because I know how sad it is not to be able to live your dream. Without even taking our order, they're in a restaurant here, Sonia slid in next to my friend <laughs> at, 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 and uh, announced that she was going to go back to school. I'm going to be a nurse, she said with wide tears of joy. My friend sat across from me, shaking his head. If I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. Maybe you're right. Maybe everybody does have a big dream. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a big dream. All you've got to do is you've got to tap into him to release that dream. So let me give you a takeaway. The biblical model for discerning your life purpose is C4. 
If you want to find your dream job, the big dream of your life, you find what you have C4 to do. And remember, C4 is calling, character, capability, and commissioning. That's the bullseye of life. What's the passion of your heart? What are the character things that are blocking you from being all God called you to be and dealing with those character flaws? What do you have skill and ability to do, and have you, have you developed it? You might be like Sonia, have the skill to be a nurse, but you haven't developed it. Develop it. And then what have authority figures called out in you? Who has taken the time to love you enough to call you into your destiny? So when you, when you apply that C4 principle in your life, you will release destiny in you, and you will release yourself to your dream job. So I have a question for you. What is your special purpose what do you have C4 to do? Now that's one hopefully you'll wrestle with tonight and over the weeks ahead. And those of you who come to the seminar, we're going to give you more insight, more depth of, of study, some more tools to begin to really wrestle with what God's called you to do. And I want to leave you with this little message here. So uh, just, just listen and watch. And this is a birthday greeting. And the reason it's a birthday greeting is because Birthdays are special days. And why are they special days? Because they're about celebrating the fact that you were born. That's why they're special. And you are special because God made you to do things that he wants you to do. You know, Ephesians 2.10 says this, that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, we read that. And we translate that good works into spiritual activity as if work in the marketplace is not spiritual. But that word good works in the New Testament is a very broad word. It's used of all kinds of work. Being an artist, being a carpenter, being a fisherman, being a merchant, being a housewife. Whatever works God has assigned to you are special because God made you and he assigned you the task of doing those works. And you bring glory to him by doing them. Jesus' definition of success was this. John 17. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What better thing to be able to say at the end of, end of your life than to say that verse right there. Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And then, hopefully, what, we're, what are we going to hear at that point? Well done. well done, good and faithful servant. Now, that word work in John 17 is the same word. It's in Ephesians 2.10. It's the word ergon. It's a very broad term for work. And in Jesus' life, by the way, the word, the word work is singular there. And his life included being a carpenter. Did God ordain that? Yes, he did. Because God ordains all work that's legitimate, God-honoring work. So whatever it is you've been assigned to do by God, it is precious to God. It is valuable to God. So enjoy this, uh, this blessing here. Is it going to work, Mark? There you go. Um, do you have to control it from back there? Can you back up one and 
Maybe you ought to do it. Okay, just click it. stop it now. It's nice music. It's nice music, yeah. Okay. Well, that was intended to bless you. I'm sorry, kind of get the drug out there. And I hope you saw the blessing that. And I want to just speak that as a, a benediction over you, that you get it, that you are special, and that you count. And God has created you to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. So, Lord, we ask that that reality would be ours tonight. A new revelation, a deep revelation of your intent and purpose for our lives. That we would really get it. That we do count. That each one of us is made specifically to serve you, to do the works that you've ordained that we do. Lord, give us grace to discover those works and to bring you glory and honor in the way that we do that work so that we can say what Jesus said when he said to you, Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Lord, give us grace to be able to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you. Does anybody have any questions before we, we dismiss? Was it that clear? I don't believe you. Why am I skeptical? Huh? Anybody? You just want to go home and go to bed? Oh, yeah, okay, we have a question. The, uh, the text you recorded on the birthday card, is that, uh-huh. uh, you have that as a printout available? Is that a card? Uh, that is on, um, let's see, what side is that? Dayspring, I think, is the name of the Dayspring. I believe that's what it is. If you can come up afterwards, I, can, I got it on my computer. I could show you where to find that card. Yeah. Somebody else. That wasn't much of a question. Come on. Shoot one at me. You may shoot one at you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I'll just make a question here. All right.
what do you recommend as sort of like a workout routine to sort of, I mean, you, you've given a glimpse of something yep. that, is, that is hope, but, you know, it's like there's so many things that flash by, and it's like what would you recommend as a workout routine or a discipline to sort of keep at it so that you come into everything that God intends? Well, I think we've got to get a, a fresh theology of God's intent and purpose, and we need to understand the C4 principle as a principle that we have to help us discover our destiny. So to me, a workout routine is get is start studying the C4 principle. Go through strategic life alignment. If you can't go through it, get the audio and go through it and start wrestling with the exercises. There's 20 pages of exercises in that seminar, and some of those questions will, will put you on your ear because they're questions you probably never ask yourself. But they're questions you've got to wrestle with to discover what God's put in you. Remember, when you came out of the womb, there wasn't a nameplate on you. And your parents may, have, may or may not have done a good job helping you discern what you are and what God's called you to do. And regardless of what they've done, you have the responsibility to put the pieces together. With your, with your advisors, your trusted friends, sit down and discover what God wants you to do in life. So that's the workout routine is to engage in this. Now the temptation is to say it's too hard. It's too difficult. I don't want to work that hard. Okay? If you do that, you will probably never find your dream job. You'll never get there. But if you will engage in studying and seeking the Lord, I think you will be utterly amazed at the doors he opens to you. Someone else? Huh? Give them an assignment? Dream assignment. Dream assignment? Huh? No job? That would be a dream assignment? No, you said you don't want to use the word job. Oh, you're right. I, I repent. Assignment. Assignment. I'm just, I'm, you know, when you swim in the ocean, you swallow salt water, right? So, I, I mean, I get caught up in these terms, too. Assignment. you got to find your assignment. That's what we want.